Well, this evening we got an exciting topic to look at, and it's called the Master Key to Bible Prophecy. How many of you would like to learn one bit of prophecy that would help you understand several chapters of all of Scripture? Would you like to do that tonight? And so that's what we're going to be looking at, is one of the specific prophecies that God gives to us that gives us understanding into several different others, and we will look at that tonight. But before we begin, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be able to be gathered together as your children again this evening. And Father, we're here because we desire to know more about you. Lord, we want to know more about the truth as it is in Jesus and to understand the words of prophecy and of Scripture that you've given to us. Father, we recognize that we can't do it on our own, but we need your Spirit to continue to guide us into all truth. And Lord, we pray that the same Spirit that inspired these words in the Bible would come and inspire our hearts with their meaning this evening. Lord, would You guide us as we study together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our study, as you know, is going through the book of Revelation, right? Unlock Revelation. You would expect to hear about Revelation. Now, many people, when they open the book of Revelation, have an expression similar to this man on the screen. What in the world is going on? Why does God choose to use prophecy? And why is He communicating with us today through the book of Revelation? You know, we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and some of those other books, and we think, man, that's clear enough to understand. Why can't God just write all the Bible like that? Well, I want to take a little bit of time this evening to share with you three brief points before we get into our main study of why God chooses to use prophecy. Have you ever wondered that question? Why would God use prophecy with His people today? Notice with me a passage from Scripture that comes from the Old Testament, and it's in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. And this is talking about God, and it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And you say, well, how is it that there's none like you? Notice what he goes on to say. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do what? All my pleasure. Now, did you notice what God says here? I am God and there's none like me. No one else can do what I do. And then He gives us one thing that He can do that no one else can. And what is that? Well, it says it in a couple ways. It says that He can declare the end from the beginning. How many of you can know the beginning of your life all the way to the end of it before you're born? Right? We don't have that privilege. God also tells us that He can say... See the things that are not yet come just as clear as we can see today. And God is able to do something, and that is that He can predict the future in a way that no one else can. Now, there's many people who think that they can predict the future today, right? You know, psychics and fortune tellers and all of those. And at best, the very best statistics you can find is that they're only 30% right. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to base my life off of a 30% chance. But we realize here that God tells us that He is God, and the way that we know He's God is that He can tell us the end from the beginning. So why does God give us prophecy? The number one reason is that it's a sign that He is God. Notice what Jesus says. After we find that 30% of the Bible is prophecy, we realize that Jesus tells us that He gives us prophecy so that we can rest our faith upon Scripture. So notice what He says. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 29, and now I have told you before what? Before it has come to pass. Does that sound like prophecy to you? Now I have told you before it has come to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were able to tell me what I was getting ready to do tomorrow and every sequence that would be happening to me throughout the day, and when it came to pass, I would know that you weren't just an ordinary person, right? And we realize when God can tell us the end from the beginning that we realize that the book that we read is not just a book written by some human, but it's a book that has to be divinely inspired because there's no one on earth who can do that. Now notice this third reason. God not only gives us prophecy to show that He's God, not only to give us evidence upon which to base our faith, but thirdly, God gives us prophecy so that we can have hope for the future. Notice what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says. It says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which we do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. 
Now, I don't know about you, but light brings a lot of peace to someone's life. Has any of you ever been scared of the dark as a child? I won't ask you to raise your hand. It's kind of embarrassing. Or you know maybe your grandchildren or your children have been scared of the dark. And just as when the light comes, it brings hope to them, it's the same word with the prophetic light that comes from the Bible. As we see clearly the things that are going to be happening, we know that Jesus is with us through all of those things. And we realize that we can trust God through that. Now, if you ever, so if you've ever wondered why it is that God gives us prophecy, it's so that we can realize that He is God, so that we have uh, something to base our faith upon, and thirdly, so that we can have hope in the future ahead. Now, as we get into the study tonight, as we're looking more specifically at prophecy, last night we did an overview of one of the large themes of Revelation, and that was the second coming of Jesus, right? But tonight we're going to take a, very, a little more of a narrow look at one chapter of prophecy, and try to understand that. But before we do it, there's seven keys to understanding Bible prophecy which would be helpful for us to understand. So we're going to review these quickly together. And if you're taking notes, feel free to write them down. And the first key when we're looking at prophecy comes from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And if you have your Bibles this evening, I would invite you to turn there. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 gives us the first key to understanding Bible prophecy. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to Him to show to His servants things which must shortly take place. And He sent and signified it by His angel to His servant John. Now notice the first few words of Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. It doesn't tell us that it's a revelation of Antichrist, does it? It doesn't tell us that it's a revelation of Satan or all of the terrible things going on in the world. But what does it tell us? That Bible prophecy is given to us to be a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is a very important key to understand. When we're studying through prophecy, if we're looking for fanciful ideas and, and, and different uh, um, fanatical things, we might be a little bit disappointed because all of prophecy is pointing to who? Jesus Christ. And we must keep that in, in mind as we continue to move forward. Now number two, and this is one that we will have a whole lecture on and multiple lectures on actually, is that the setting of Revelation is God's temple in heaven. Now if you were to continue on reading through Revelation chapter 1, it wouldn't take you long to realize that the imagery found in Revelation chapter 1 is found somewhere else in Scripture. Now, Revelation chapter 1, and if you're wondering where you can look at that later, you can start in verse 12 and continue onward to the end of the chapter, and you realize that John is portraying imagery that's very familiar to the people of first century Christianity, but isn't so familiar to us today. And the imagery and the setting of Revelation is actually in God's temple in heaven. And you say, well, how is that familiar to God's people and first century Christianity? Well, many of you are familiar with the stories of the Exodus, right? Where the people were going through the wilderness and God called them to build a sanctuary. And that sanctuary wasn't just something that they designed and they fabricated and thought was a good idea. But we're actually told in Hebrews that in, in, in the book of Exodus that that sanctuary was patterned after the very sanctuary that was in heaven first. Now, as the people went through this, God gave them symbols in the sanctuary to keep pointing them to the Savior. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to go into all of this tonight, but this is just something we need to know. That as we go through the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, as we see those two books are connected, that we have to understand the imagery that we're finding is the imagery of the sanctuary service, and that will be very significant in our study. We won't see that so much tonight, but we'll see that in later nights. Now, key number three is that apocalyptic prophecy employs the expand and enlarge principle. And this is what we're going to see very explicitly tonight as we look at the prophecy that we're going to be studying together. Now, what do I mean by the expand and enlarge principle? The, the prophecy that we're going to be looking at tonight is found in Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, God gives us a basic outline of the things that are going to be happening. Now the same prophecy is actually told again in different words and different language in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11. We actually find similar imagery to Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17, 18, and even some in Revelation chapter 20. And what's interesting to note that as God shares the prophecy first in Daniel chapter 2, 
He gives us a basic outline, but as he continues to move forward, he fills in the blanks. Does that make sense? So as he continues to move, there's constantly more detail and more detail, and we're starting to zoom in more and more into the specifics of the prophecy. So when we understand that we're studying Bible prophecy, we can understand that we already have a framework within we can work because the Bible repeats and enlarges what it says in other places. We'll look at that tonight if that's a little confusing to you now. Now key number four is that in apocalyptic prophecy, it's expected to be symbolic and universal. Now notice with me Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 again very quickly. We'll find this key here. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Notice what God says that He did to the book of Revelation before He gave it to John. We've read this already, so it says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to Him to show to His servants things which must shortly come to pass." Notice He doesn't just stop there. And it continues on and it says, "...and He sent and He did what?" What is that word? He sent and He signified it, is what my translation says. And then He gave it to His angel unto His servant John. Now what does it mean to signify something? You see, God took the words and the message that He wanted to communicate to humankind and He put it in symbolic language. That's what it means to signify something. And if God puts something in symbolic language, does that mean we're supposed to take that symbol literally or we're supposed to understand the meaning of that symbol? Now, if you tell your children an analogy, are you expecting them to realize and live out every explicit thing just like you said in your story? No, you're just giving that as an example, right? And the purpose behind which you're saying it is what you're really pointing at. Now, we're going to notice this again tonight in the prophecy that we look at, that God is not talking about the specific detail, but He's using a word picture to point our minds to the clarity of Scripture. Now, the next point along with that is that we can't just make up what those symbols mean. Does that make sense? In other words, like Mike was saying, we have those bookmarks back there where we allow the Bible to interpret itself. In other words, if we know that a horn represents something in Bible prophecy, I can't just tell you, well, a horn represents such and such because that's what I think. You know, that would be really useless. But if we allow God to tell us what that meaning is, we can get clearer understanding. And that's what we're going to realize tonight. And number five, and this is the key principle, is that we have to allow the Bible to interpret itself. How many of you have heard many different interpretations of the book of Revelation? And some on the very same chapter. You'll hear one person, and sometimes they'll give you different interpretations even just a few years apart. And the same person is flip-flopping back and forth and coming up with different ideas about what it means. Well, I'm not here to give you my own opinion because I know my own opinion doesn't really matter. But we want to know what does the Bible say and allowing the Bible to interpret itself. Now, in order to do that, there's an analogy that helps us. As we're looking into Bible prophecy and understanding Bible truth, there's something that helps us to understand. First, we have to gather all the given information on that topic. Would you agree? If God says something in 40 different verses, can we just take one of those verses and make a doctrine out of it? No, we need to ha allow the whole of Scripture to inform our decisions, right? Now, imagine with me that you were putting in a fence. Has anyone ever put in a fence before? You know, it's quite a bit of work and you're pu punching the post holes and you're doing all the labor for it. And as you get done, at the end of the day, you're looking down the row of the fence line and you realize that one of the fence posts is out of line with the other 50 that you've just put up. What are you going to do? Are you going to move the other 49 or are you going to move the one that's out of place? We're going to move the one that's out of place, right? And this is a principle that helps us understand how do we interpret the Bible. Sometimes there's passages we don't fully understand. Would you agree? Have you ever read a Bible passage and thought, well, I don't really know what that means exactly, but you have a whole host of texts that are very clear on that given subject. You see, it's not our job to move all of the other 49 texts into harmony with that one obscure one, but we allow the whole of Scripture to inform our decisions. Now, moving on to the last two keys, the key number six is that we must realize that Revelation is the last chapter of the book. Now, God has given us 66 books in the Bible in which we are to learn about Him. We're aware of that, right? We have the Old Testament books and we have the New Testament books. And by the time we get to the book of Revelation, God has already given us all of the other information to help us to understand the book of Revelation. 
Now the reason why this is important is because many people want to come to the last book of Revelation and try to understand it on its own. But what's very interesting to note is that Revelation itself quotes the Old Testament over 300 times. Now, I don't know about you, but if I want to understand the book of Revelation, and if it's quoting the other sources, then we need to know the Old Testament. Would you agree? Now, there's some people who are a little bit uneasy about studying the Old Testament. They wonder if it's really valuable for us today as New Testament Christians, right? Which is a fair question. But I want to ask you a question. What was Jesus studying when he was studying the Bible? Was Jesus studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Was Jesus studying the book of Acts? Or even the epistles of Paul? Now, we're not putting any of those down. God gave those. Those are books of the Bible. But we realize that those had not come yet by the time Jesus was on this earth, right? You realize when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, that he was quoting Scripture to Satan to overcome the temptation. And where was he quoting from? The book of Deuteronomy. You see, Jesus was using the Old Testament to help understand who God was. In other words, is it important for us to understand the Old Testament? Well, I'm a pretty simple person. And if Jesus did it, I want to do it, right? And if Jesus thought that the Old Testament was important, how many of you think that it should be important for us today and should inform our views of what the Bible says about the times in which we live? Now, the last key that we're going to look at is or the key number seven, and that's that revelation must be studied with a desire to follow what is revealed. Now this is a very key passage. John or Jesus says in John chapter 7 verse 17, if any man would do his will, Jesus is speaking, if anyone's willing to do what Jesus says, he will know of his doctrine. That's what Jesus tells us. In other words, if we don't have a willingness to follow what God is going to be revealing to us, why would God continue to tell us more? Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's completely distracted? And every time you try to talk to them, they're looking off and they're looking around. How long do you want to keep talking to them? Now, don't get me wrong. God continues to communicate with us, praise the Lord. But he realizes that why is he going to continue to reveal things to us if we're not listening to what we already know? He actually says it in another way in Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Um, I'm going to have to find this passage. Revelation chapter 22, I believe. Or forgive me, Revelation chapter 1. Verse 3. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Notice what Jesus says. Helping us to understand how important it is for us to be willing to follow what the Lord reveals to us. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, Blessed is he who reads. Now is that where it stops? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Those are two things we're good at doing. Reading and hearing. But notice what it continues on to say and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is near. Now many of us want to come to a prophecy seminar just to learn things or to, to church services or wherever else, just to hear about the Bible. But is there any value in just hearing the Bible without allowing it to transform our lives? You see, Jesus says that there's a blessing for us if we study the book of Revelation. But that blessing only comes as we read it, as we hear it, and then as we're willing, by the grace of God, to keep it. Now, is that why we're here this evening? We don't want to waste our time, right? If anyone's not here for that purpose, it would be a good idea to say, Lord, help me to have that reason, right? Help me to be willing to do those things that you're asking me to do. Now, do we have those keys written down? Do we have them in mind as we get ready to look at the prophecy that we're looking at this evening? We're going to walk through this together, and I believe that the Lord's going to bless our study as we get ready to go through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, this evening. Now, as we start this study, I want to give a little bit of a preface and a specific introduction to the chapter that we're actually going to be reading. Daniel chapter 2. Now, some of you might say, well, I thought I came to a Revelation seminar. Let me explain something to you very, very quickly that helps us to understand why we're studying what we're studying. Last night we studied the signs of Jesus' coming because we can see those are the bookends of Revelation, right? Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 22. Tonight we're going to be studying the book of Daniel because Daniel chapter 2 is the filter in which that helps us to understand Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 11, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, and Revelation 18. Now, if we want to understand the book of Revelation, we realize that Daniel and John actually share similar imagery in their prophecies, and we'll see that as we continue on. 
And Daniel chapter 2 is kind of the very foundation, or as the, the presentation is entitled, the very master key to Bible prophecy. And the reason why this prophecy is very important to me as well is because I don't know about you, but I was raised as a Christian, but at certain times I started to doubt whether or not the book that I held in my hand was actually a book that God had inspired or if it was something that man had just put together. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I believe that we all live in a world where we're surrounded by skeptics and we're surrounded by doubt. And I remember my first year as a college freshman, and I'm glad I only had one year as a college freshman, my first year and only year as a college freshman, I remember sitting there at my death, and after being challenged by some things that I heard, I began to think, is this Bible really true? And I remember it was such an agonizing experience because I had just come back to God and I'm thinking, man, I just come back to God and now I'm starting to doubt whether or not there even is a God. And I remember after struggling with, with this for month after month after month and I would be praying, Lord, please help me to believe. Help me to understand these things. Help me to understand the truth. And sometimes I would ask a Christian, well, how do you know the Bible's real? And they would say, well, because God wrote it. And I'd say, how do you know God wrote it? Well, because the Bible says it. Well, how do you know that? Well, because God wrote it. It was just this cyclical reasoning. And I thought, man, there has to be something in which I can base my faith upon. If God is intelligent enough to give me the Bible, He has to give me something that I can anchor my faith in. And I remember one Saturday morning, I was sitting there at my desk and pleading with God and just pleading that He would show me something. And as I was praying, the thought came to mind, study Daniel chapter 2. Now, it wasn't the first time that I'd ever studied Daniel chapter 2. I'd, I'd heard of it before. But I thought, you know, what, what does Daniel chapter 2 have to do with any of these questions that I'm having? And I just felt like it was a persistent thought. Study Daniel chapter 2. And I remember that morning opening to Daniel chapter 2, which is where we're going to be studying this evening. And after reading through Daniel chapter 2, there was no doubt in my mind that there is a God in heaven. And not only that there's a God in heaven, but there's a God in heaven that communicates to us through His Word. And that's what I want to share with you this evening, is that if there's any of you struggling with doubt, if there's any of you wondering if we can really trust the Bible, or just looking for more information in which you can share with other people, as we look through this prophecy that God has given, and we saw one of the reasons for prophecy was so that we can know that God is God, and number two, so that we can know that we have something we can base our faith upon, I pray that this happens to us this evening. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, as we look to the master key of Bible prophecy. Daniel chapter 2 is one of the most fascinating prophecies, and I hope that you learn to love it just as much as I do if you don't already. Daniel chapter 2 will be the main course of our study this evening. Now, to understand the setting of Daniel, many of you are familiar with the Israelites who are traveling through the wilderness, and we know that they got established in Canaan the promised land that God had given to them. But before, after they were established, we realized that they wandered away from God. You're familiar with that story, right? You've read through the minor prophets and major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah lamenting the condition of God's people. And finally, it became so bad that God allowed His people to be taken into captivity, and that was captivity in Babylon. Now, Babylon was a place that was the most powerful kingdom at that time, and we realize as we read through Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 that it was King Nebuchadnezzar who called the people over. And well, it wasn't so polite as necessarily a call to bring them over, but it, they were brought over as slaves to the land of Babylon. Now Daniel, the writer of this Bible book, is actually a slave, one of the Judean captives in the land of Babylon as he's writing this. Now you can realize there's many different stories. Many of you are familiar with the story of Daniel and the lion's den, right? We're familiar with that story. Some of us might even be familiar with the story of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who got thrown into the fire and came out just fine. Well, what's interesting to note about Revelation is not only does it have wonderful stories, but those stories actually have prophetic implication as well, which we'll realize another night. But also we understand that there's specific prophecies given in the book of Daniel, and Daniel chapter 2 is the very first prophecy that we find in the book, and that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Now, Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians and the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever had that powerful of a dream to where my sleep was gone from me. I, did, I was telling someone last night, or two nights ago, that just two nights before, not this last night, but the night prior, I had a dream that our child was born. Now, it was an odd dream, and there was things that seemed really weird to me, but it didn't pull my sleep away. And you realize that sometimes we have crazy dreams, but in order for him to be so troubled, he knew that it must be significant. Now, there's something that we must understand. In the culture of that time, it was very familiar for the people to realize that the gods would communicate to them, sometimes through dreams and visions and things of that sort. Now, in the times in which we live today, someone would just look at you odd if you told them you had a dream that predicted the future. But this was normal practice. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he calls all the wise men of his kingdom there. And notice what they say to him. Then the Chaldeans, who are the smart people, spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give you the interpretation. Now, that sounds fair enough, doesn't it? King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, he's troubled by it, he can't remember it, and his, his wise men, he tells them, hey, why don't you just, why don't you just tell us the dream and, and we'll figure out a way to interpret it for you. Well, notice what verse 5 says. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very good day at work for these Chaldeans, right? And as they're hearing this, he continues on in verse 6. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, reward, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, for us reading this, we might say, well, that's a pretty unfair way of treating your servants, right? But what's interesting to note is the Chaldeans and the people who are called to be interpreting this dream have claimed in times past that they were capable of doing this. In other words, they claim to have communication with the gods or they claim through looking at the stars they can figure out what's really going on behind the scenes. But finally in the time when they're pressed for an answer, they realize that their prior methods might be a little bit insignificant to give them the desired answer. Well, there were some interesting ideas about how they could find ways in which to give the king his answers. As people have studied what the Chaldeans believed, they believed that looking to the stars and looking at the movements, they could tell certain things about the times and seasons and which would give them more information. Or they also believed that they could take an animal and cut it in half, and by looking at the entrails of the animal, they would be able to tell patterns and signs to be able to give interpretation about the future. Now, when the time of testing came, these people weren't so sure about their method. Notice in verse 8. It says, The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. But if you do not make known the dream to me, therefore there is only one decree for you. For you have, ad you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, Tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. Now, I don't know about you, but if you could tell me what I dreamed last night and then also give me the meaning, I would start to trust that the meaning you gave me was really based on something larger than yourself. Would you agree? Anyone can hear something and make up a fancy explanation, and this is what many people even do with the prophecies of Revelation, right? They hear it and they just start coming up with all sorts of things. And as the people realize they're being pressed for an answer, they start to get a little bit nervous. But notice it continues on. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Was that true? Therefore, the ki no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any musician, astrologer, or Chaldean. Notice verse 11. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no one who can tell the king except the what? The gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now I think this is a very interesting point, that the people who don't even believe in the God of heaven start to realize that the only one who can give answers to prophetic things is the one who sees the end from the beginning, and that would be the God whose dwelling is not with flesh. 
Now what's very fascinating to note is that the God whose dwelling is not with flesh was the only one who can interpret this dream and give what the dream was, and we're going to see that as we continue through this chapter. Notice as it continues on, for this reason, verse 12, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Verse 13 tells us that the captain of the king's guard, Arioch, had started going out killing these wise men. And as he's going through the list of wise men, there's some people that were more familiar who were on his hit list. Their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In other words, they're the four faithful people of God who were also part of, of the wise men of the group of Babylon. Now, we don't know why they weren't called to the meeting, but we realize that Daniel gets a knock on his door, and it's from Arioch, the captain of the king's guards, and he says, hey, Daniel, I'm here to kill you. And Daniel says, hey, hey, why is the decree so hasty? Give us some time, and the God of heaven can let you know what's taking place. Now, I don't know about you, but if my life was on the line, I would be a little bit nervous. Have you ever had someone knock on your door telling them that it's your time to go? Well, I don't really want to experience that anytime soon, but what is Daniel and his three friends' response to this situation of execution? Notice verse 17. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companion, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven. Now, have you ever heard someone say, I can't really do much for you, but I'll just pray? Sorry, I can't really help you, but I'll pray for you. You realize sometimes we think of prayer as a last resort. But here Daniel and his three friends are faced with death, and they realize that prayer is not the last resort, but it's actually the first and best thing that they can do. So as they're there facing the death sentence, they decide to have a prayer meeting. And as they're there praying, they start to plead that God would make these visions known and these things known, and that God would help this to be worked out in a way that could be beneficial for His kingdom. Now, as this looks on, notice what happens in verse 19. Actually, verse 18 we just finished reading. So verse 19, after they finished the prayer, it says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel, and notice where it was revealed. In a night vision, or in a dream. Now, what does that tell you? In order for something to be revealed to you in a dream, what do you have to be doing? Sleeping. Notice the progress here. Daniel has someone who knocks on his door, tells him, hey, if you can't give me an answer, you're going to be killed. Daniel has his night prayers and a prayer meeting, and then he goes to bed. How many of you would be able to sleep knowing that the next morning, if you don't give an answer, that your life has ended? But Daniel knew the God in which he was serving, right? He trusts the God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that he asks or thinks. Now there's an example for us that we could follow in this, right? The Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that we're to let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Many of us could re be relieved of a lot of suffering that we faced if we would just go to the Lord in prayer. But as Daniel and his friends prayed, the Lord revealed this thing to him in a night vision, and it says, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. It's too often that the Lord answers our prayers and we don't thank Him for it. But as Daniel, Shadrach, Mishael, and Azariah realized that God had answered their prayers, they began to thank the Lord for what He's done. Now notice what happens next. Verse 25. Daniel gets this. He praises the Lord. And you can read that in your own time as you finish off this chapter, maybe this evening. But notice verse 25. Then Arioch, Daniel comes and lets him know. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king. This is the same guy who was just about to kill Daniel. And said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel says in verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded the wise men, the astrologers, and the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Just trying to rub it in a little bit maybe. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the what? 
latter days. God had given him a vision to let him know what's going to be coming in the days ahead. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. Now he continues to go on and tell Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I want to assure you of one thing. The reason why God revealed this thing to me is not because I'm something special, but it's because there's a God in heaven who wants to communicate with you. I think we can learn a lesson of humility from Daniel as well. How many of you would be so happy that you save the lives of many people and that you have the answer to something that was a national crisis, but Daniel just says, hey, I want to let you know, it's not me, it's the God in heaven. And Daniel, after this, begins to explain to King Nebuchadnezzar what it is that he saw in this vision and what it was that will be happening in the latter days. Notice the verses that are coming up. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. It says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of brass, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was to be found. And the stone that struck the image became, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now you can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar just sitting on the edge of his sea. And Daniel says, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Now it's amazing. I don't know about you, but this is not just a bunch of stuff Daniel could have made up, right? And you can, I don't know about you, if you've ever missed a dream before or couldn't remember it and it starts to come back and if someone says something and it starts to bring back the memory of it, Daniel couldn't have just lied to King Nebuchadnezzar about the dream. Saying, oh, you dreamed such and such. King Nebuchadnezzar would have known that. But as Daniel's speaking, the very things that he dreamed started to come back to his mind, and he's thinking, yeah, this is it, this is it, this is it. And then he says, well, I'm not only going to tell you the dream, but I'll give you the interpretation of it as well. How many of you would like to know the interpretation of the dream? I think that's why we're here this evening, right? What does it tell us? Because God told us that this dream was given to King Nebuchadnezzar, and I would say to us today as well, to help us to know what will be coming in the latter day. We saw last night that we're living in the latter day. That we're living in the time before Jesus starts to come. So the question is, what does this dream tell us today? Notice, Daniel continues on in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 38. Daniel says, and wherever the, and this is halfway through a passage, let's back up to verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the heaven, He has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Now you see, Daniel begins to explain to King Nebuchadnezzar that he saw an image, right? He just, we went through that as we read through it together. There was a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as he finishes that, he looks to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, you're the head of gold. Now, I don't know about you, but it's always nice to be the head and not the tail, right? But there's one problem with the head of gold is that it's only the head and it's not the rest of the body. But what we see here is that Daniel is telling us that the prophetic interpretation of this very passage is that the representation of the head is who? King Nebuchadnezzar or more specifically, the kingdom of Babylon. And you say, well, why the kingdom of Babylon? Notice what it continues on to say in verse 39. But after you shall arise another what? Kingdom. Now, can another kingdom rise after you if the first interpretation wasn't a kingdom as well? No, it's just natural, right? God says, you are the head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar. And the kingdom in which you rule over, a king cannot be a king without a kingdom. And as he's the kingdom, he's the king of Babylon, God says, you are the one at the head of this statue. Now, gold is a very fitting term and depiction of what Babylon is like. This is one artist's rendition of Babylon. And I don't know if you understand this, but Babylon comprised some of the seven wonders of the world, right? There's the hanging gardens of Babylon, which is where to be the most beautiful thing 
And basically, the seven wonders of the world were if you had to see seven things before you died, this was one of them, one of the wealthiest places. Now, why was gold so fitting? In Babylon, there was a temple to Marduk, which was their main god, and this temple contained 18 tons of gold. Now, that's a lot of gold. 36,000 pounds worth of gold, right? When you look at Babylon, it was a, gold, a, a city just laced in gold as though it was something you would just walk upon. You can look at many other pictures, and as my wife and I had the opportunity to go through the London Heathrow British Museum just a month ago, you can realize that many of the things associated with Babylon were items of gold and things in which that when God says you're the head of gold, it was just a natural fit. Now something else about Babylon is that Babylon was known to have a 20-year food supply. In other words, if someone came to besiege Babylon, Babylon used to taunt them by throwing their food over the wall to the enemies who were waiting outside. And they said, hey, we're going to outlast you anyway, so why don't we help you a little bit, as they taunted the army. Babylon was such a fortified city that it said that they could have chariot races on the walls of the city because they were so fortified and large. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar had nothing to worry about, is what he thought. And so as he hears this prophecy, and you can read in uh, Daniel chapter 4 that King Nebuchadnezzar had an issue with pride. He stands up on the walls and says, isn't this great Babylon which I have built, and thinks that there's no way he can ever be conquered. And that's what everyone else thought in Babylon. And so when Daniel's standing there in the courts of this king and says that you're the head of gold, but there's another kingdom that's going to take over, everyone had to look at Daniel and think, yeah, right. You know, look at one of these other doomsday prophets. You know, he's coming along, telling us that the end of all things is at hand, but it can never happen because we're just too high and mighty and no one can ever overthrow us. But I want to ask you, if God is a true prophet, and if He's truly God, then what He says has to really come to pass. Notice what the next verse says, and we've already started reading this. In verse 39, Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar, it's nice that you're the head of gold, but after you there shall arise another kingdom. And what kind of kingdom? A kingdom that is inferior to yours. Now, is inferior better than or worse than? In other words, there's a kingdom that's going to be weaker than you that's going to take you over. I don't know about you, but if I was a king, I don't think I would really enjoy hearing the words that someone else is going to take my kingdom over. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar is listening to this, it's, it's almost met with scoffing, and you can realize that as you read through Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 4, that it's hard to believe that this could ever happen. Actually, so much so, in Daniel chapter 5, there's a drunken feast that's thrown by the king for all of the royals and for all of the power that's going on. And you think, well, there's, you know, they're just having a party. What's so big, what's the big deal about that? Well, the interesting thing about Daniel chapter 5 is the people are inside throwing a party while there's the enemies outside surrounding the city getting ready to invade Babylon. But Babylon was so confident in their ability to never be overcome that they said there's no way those guys out there are coming inside. But you realize that there's a God in heaven who can pr predict the future. Daniel chapter 5, they saw the writing on the wall and Daniel tried to warn them of the things that were to come. And it's very interesting that in their negligence and in their inability to really rationalize what's going on, they forgot to lock the gates. The city that could never be broken, the city that walls were so thick you couldn't ram through, they forgot to lock the gates. And not just the main gates, but they forgot to lock the gates that went through the water channel that ran through the city. Now what's very fascinating about this is that Cyrus and the army of the Medo-Persians walked through under the gates that, with the, the water flowing through Babylon, walked through on dry ground because they diverted the river off, and after doing that came and opened the main gates and the whole army just rushed in and besieged Babylon. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 5. This would be fascinating enough, knowing that God could predict the overthrow of a massive kingdom, but what's even more amazing is notice this passage in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. Isaiah 45 verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Now you might be saying, well, that's not that big of a deal. He's just writing what happened. 
Well, what's very fascinating to know is that Isaiah wrote that passage of Scripture 150 years before Babylon was ever overthrown. In other words, this was written before the children of Israel even went to Babylonian captivity. But God says, hey, I'm going to, be, I'm going to tell you something about the future. You're going to go into captivity. You'll be there 70 years. You'll be taken over. The Babylonians will be taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And not only that, but the man leading the army, his name will be Cyrus. Now you might be looking at me saying, well, that's really interesting. That's all in the Bible, but how can you know it's true? How many of you have ever heard of the Cyrus Cylinder before? My wife and I had the opportunity, as I was saying, to go to the British Museum last month in London, and this is the Cyrus Cylinder sitting there on display in the Mesopotamian room. And what's so fascinating about the Cyrus Cylinder is that it's the actual cylinder that Cyrus wrote upon to talk about the overthrow of Babylon. And Cyrus, as he lays out exactly what happens, he talks about the gates of the water, the water gates were open, and we went through them, we diverted the river, we went off to the main thing. It was kind of the siege plans that they had and how they conquered the city. And what's fascinating to note is not only does the Bible tell us what took place, but it's only been in recent years that they've dug this up and they can now verify that what the Bible said is not only proved in the Bible, but can be, we can have faith to establish it upon by evidence that we find outside of the Bible as well. You see, God wants us to realize that the things that He says are trustworthy. He told us that Babylon would be the head of gold, but it would be overtaken by Medo-Persia. And that's exactly what we see. The Medo-Persian Empire reigned from 539 to 331 BC. Now we have to keep moving. Notice what happens next. Finishing off with this verse, after there's a second kingdom that comes, notice what it says. It says, then another, a third kingdom of what? Of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Now I want to ask you a question. What's the third kingdom? For those of you who know world history or are history buffs, what kingdom came after the Medo-Persian or the Persian Empire? Greece, right? Now, we're going to look at this together, that Greece didn't just happen by chance, but Greece is actually what God predicted hundreds of years before it ever came. Notice with me Daniel chapter 8. I told you that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8 and 9, and Daniel chapter 11 cover very similar topics with repeat and enlarge. And it goes so much that in Daniel chapter 2, we're just given the images of succession of kingdom. But in Daniel chapter 8, it goes so far to name Medo-Persia, then it names that the third kingdom would be the kingdom of Greece. It says, And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And we'll deal with that more. But what was the notable king that was running the Greek empire, taking over the then known world? Alexander the Great, right? Many of you are familiar with him. And he was conquering so rapidly that by the age of 33, he had conquered the whole then known world. Now, why is it that when God represents Greece, He uses the image of brass to, to help us to see that that's the kingdom that He's talking about? One thing that's very interesting to note, and I'd heard people say this but never seen it with my own eyes, is that the kingdom of Babylon was filled with gold. We saw the evidence for that. The kingdom of Medo-Persia used silver as their currency. In other words, they didn't choose the gold of Babylon, but they were inferior to Babylon and they had silver. But what's interesting is that Greece and all of the soldiers in the Greek army wore bronze armor. Now you might be saying, well that's really interesting. Anything, anyone could just make that up and say that's true. Well, I had the opportunity when we were, my wife and I, before going to London, we were in Greece for a few days and we went to the Acropolis Museum, which is located in Athens. And as we're going through there, it's not a biblical museum, just a normal recap of all the things that had come. We came to an exhibit that had this laying here, and I realize it's a little darker than I thought it would be. But can you guys see what's on the screen here? It looks like a spearhead, right? And if you can notice, there's some discoloration that only happens to one metal, and that's the metal of brass. Now you might say, oh, that's just a coincidence. Their spear was just brass, you know? And their helmet was brass that we saw a picture of. Well, what's interesting, too, is they had this whole display of the armor, and I only gave you a few snapshots of it. But here's a little bit of the armor off of the, the shoulder or something. I forget what the number nine tells us that it was. But the armor was also of brass. They had a helmet of brass, spear of brass, and the armor of brass. And I want to ask you a question. Do you think God knew what he was talking about? God didn't just pick random things. He picked the most prominent things that could spark our minds to say, hey, 
Maybe God knows what He's talking about. Alexander the Great, as we talked about, was the ruler of that kingdom and he died at the age of 33 because of intemperance. He didn't drink in moderation, he drank to his death, and we realize that here he was, killing himself, even though he could conquer the world, he couldn't conquer his own appetite. Now, we're going to move on quickly. Verse 40, it says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, the kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Now this is interesting. We saw the first kingdom was the kingdom of Babylon. After that came the Medo-Persian, or most prominently known as the Persian Empire. Then we have the kingdom of Greece, and the fourth kingdom that we're given, what do the characteristics sound like? Do they sound like a very nice people or a very vicious people? Well, I don't know if you can look at this, but they're made of iron, just as iron breaks in pieces and shatters, and they crush, and they break in pieces, and they crush. You see that? It sounds like they're a very military, advancing kingdom, and their prominence is their iron. Now, can I ask you what kingdom comes after Greece, for those of you who have studied history? Rome, right? The kingdom of Rome, and we can see that Rome fits very explicitly with what the Bible is telling us. From 168 to 476, when Western Europe fell, we realized that Rome was in power. And notice this quote by Edward Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It says, the images of gold, silver, and brass that might serve to represent the nations of their king were successively broken by the what? Iron monarchy of Rome. Have you ever heard that term before? The iron monarchy of Rome or the iron-clad soldiers of Rome? It's a historical term to describe Rome from even a secular standpoint because Rome was such a cruel, cruel nation. Now we realize that it was so cruel that they were actually the ones who sent out a death decree to kill everyone under the age of two during the time of Christ, right? They were so cruel that they could take a perfect man by the name of Jesus and nail him with iron nails to a cross and that they would crucify the Messiah who came to save them. You realize that the Romans are the ones who actually perfected the idea of crucifixion. They didn't invent it, but they perfected it. They figured out how they could get people to hang on a cross long enough and even longer so that they could be tortured on an extended period without dying. Does this sound like a people who's crushing and bruising and breaking just like the Bible describes? Now notice the Bible doesn't just stop there. Daniel chapter 2, verse 41. It says, whereas you saw the feet, of, feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Now, here's where we notice that there's a little bit of a transition in the flow of thought. Every other kingdom, we see that there's a kingdom of Babylon, and then they're overthrown, and there's the kingdom of Medo-Persia. King, the kingdom of Medo-Persia is overthrown, and then the kingdom of Greece comes into power. Greece is overthrown, and then the Romans come into power. But is that the language that we hear here? It doesn't say that there's going to be another kingdom coming, but it says that your kingdom should be what? Divided. Now, for those of you who have studied history, you know the history of Rome is that Rome didn't get conquered by another powerful nation, but in 476, there's someone who went and usurped the power of the man who was in charge, and the people just said, well, you know what? We're not going to follow him anymore. And they just kind of divided off and just as the iron toes were, were partly of clay, partly of iron, we realized that there was a division amongst the Roman Empire. It says, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Now this is amazing. We realize that Daniel wrote this prophecy, wrote this book in 600 B.C. Here he's talking about a division of the Roman Empire that happened in 476 A.D. And I want to ask you, is it possible that someone could know a thousand years of history? Well, notice that Daniel doesn't even just stop here, but he continues to tell us that, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And he continues on and tells us this, and you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere one to another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now I want to ask you a question. How many toes does the normal person have on their feet? Twelve, right? No, ten. Okay, I guess I wasn't normal. There's ten toes on every person's feet, right? Now, if the kingdom is to be divided like the ten toes of the kingdom of the statue, 
would you think that Europe would be divided into ten different provinces? Well, we don't have to do any guesswork. You can just look at a map of, of historical Europe about the fifth century, and you realize that the divisions of Rome were divided into ten parts. You have the Alemanni, which were the Germans, the Burgundians, the, the Swiss, the Franks were the French, and so on and so forth. And you realize that there were ten prominent kingdoms that arose out of modern Europe, and three of them are extinct, which is exactly what Daniel chapter 7 tells us would happen. Now what's interesting is God didn't just make up ten toes and then there's ten kingdoms. How can someone know this with such accuracy unless they're God who knows the end from the beginning? It tells us also that they would mingle with the seed of men, but they would not adhere to one another. What does it mean that they wouldn't adhere to one another? that they wouldn't be one nation anymore, right? Rome was divided, and it says that they will do everything they can to try to get back together, to have the unity and strength they once had. And what's one of the ways that they will do that? It says that they will mingle with the seed of men. A nicer way of saying that is that intermarriage would be something that they would use to try to bring unity in the, in the continent of Europe. Now, do we see that that's what happened in the past? If you go to the Fredericksburg Castle in Denmark, there's this painting on the wall that has the murals of the royal families. And what's fascinating as you look at the different murals of the royal families is that you realize that one king would give his daughter to the king of another country so that they could hopefully have some unity brought together between the families and start to pull together the different divisions. And if you just Google some of the different names, you see that it happened explicitly and prominently trying to reunite Europe. But I want to ask you the question, what does the Bible say? Would it be possible for them to be unified once again? No, it says that they would mingle with the seed of men, but that they would not be brought back together. Now, intermarriage wasn't the only thing that they did to try to unite Europe, but many of you are familiar that there are people throughout time who have done their best to reunite the continent of Europe. There was a man by the name of Charlemagne who lived in historic times who was trying to conquer the world and force people into unity. There was also one that we know more about named Napoleon. And notice what Napoleon's objective was. In his journal, it says that there will be one Europe, one currency, one language, one government over all of Europe. Now, was Napoleon successful? Notice what he says after the defeat of Waterloo. He says, God Almighty is what? Too much for me. He goes on to say that it seemed like there was just divine providence keeping him from winning the war. How was he conquered? It was only because God Almighty, because God said that they would never be united again. One in more modern times, the man by the name of Hitler. One people, one empire, one leader. Hitler looked like he was being successful for a large portion of time, but was he successful in the end? No, it's because they would not adhere to one another as the Bible said. You know, many voices but one people is the idea of the European Union now. My wife and I were just over there in Europe for two weeks last month. And what's interesting is even though they're doing all that they can to unite Europe, you realize that each country is just as different as we are from Canada and Mexico. That it's so drastically different. Languages are different even though they have the, uh, the currency of the euro. Some countries just refuse to use it. We went to Britain where we had to be changing our money from euros into pounds because the queen's, the queen's money is much more proper than the euro. And so you realize that all of these attempts to unite Europe are really fruitless because that is exactly what God said. You know, there's a story. One of my professors in college, his name was Michael Hosel. And Michael Hosel was my Hebrew teacher. He's an archaeologist. And one fascinating thing is that his grandfather served in the Nazi army during the time of Hitler. Not by choice, but by draft. And as he was there in the army, his father was a Bible-believing Christian and he knew the things that Hitler was doing were wrong and he saw the atrocities and he didn't agree with it. And as he was working there and laboring with the people, one day he got invited into the office of his commanding officer. Now, as he was in the office of the commanding officer, the officer turned to his, his grandfather and said, Hazel, are we going to win the war? Now, you see, Dr. Hazel's grandfather had studied the Bible and the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2. He realized that God said that the, the world would never be, Europe would never be reunited. But there he's faced by his commanding officer of the German Nazi army saying, are we going to win this war? Now, 
Can you imagine what would happen if you say no? You'd look like a spy or like you're speaking treason. And Hazel just said, well, I'm not exactly sure how to answer your question. Is this an official question or an unofficial question? And there was a standing thing going on in the army at that time that if an officer took his hat off and put it on the desk, you could speak freely. And the officer took his hat off and put it on the desk, and Hazel said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to let you know, sir, but I do not believe that we're going to win this war. He said, well, why aren't we going to win this war? And Dr. Hazel took his Bible out, and he started to go through the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 and show the succession of kingdoms that had taken place for over a thousand years. And he said, sir, it's been right in every other point. We're going to lose this war. Now the commanding officer said, okay, go ahead and go, go about your business. And the next day, Dr. Hazel's grandfather got called back to the office of this general. Now when he was in the office, it wasn't just his commanding officer this time, but there were two other superiors in rank there with him. And Dr. Hazel's grandfather thought, man, I've really done myself in this time. Now I don't really stand a chance. And they all stood there and they said, I, I want you to go ahead and explain to me what you explained to me last time you were in my office. And the general took his hat off and he felt a little bit of relief. And he said, well, sir, this is what's happening. You see, Babylon was in power and then the Medo-Persian Empire took them over. And then after that, we saw Greece in succession and then Rome. And this is what the Bible predicted and showed them the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. And as they looked at that, the commanding officer kept looking at the guy to his right. And the guy to the right would nod his head at the end of each sentence that he said. And he said, good, this is a historian who served in one of the universities before coming to the army. And I'm verifying that everything you said was true to history. And he said, yes, sir, it's true. And the commanding officer looked at him and said, Mr. Hazel, what you need to do is start rationing our fuel. Because we realize that we're going to need to get out of here. And because of that, Hazel's unit was able to leave the war without losing one man because they understood that the Nazi army could not win the war because of what God said in Daniel chapter 2. Do you think God can predict the end from the beginning? There's a man willing to risk his life on it and actually save the lives of all his men. Now I want to ask a question this evening. If God is able to guide so perfectly in history, do you think He can guide our lives? What if we just trusted God and allowed Him to direct us every step of the way. Do you think we would experience a little more peace? Notice what God says as He finishes off this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. We realize that the feet of iron and clay was not the end of the prophecy, right? But we already read this before, and it says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will do what? Now, in the days of what kings? It's not the king of Babylon. It's not the king of Medo-Persia. Not the king of Greece. Not the king of Rome. But it's in the days of the kings of divided Europe that the next thing that would happen is that Jesus would come and set up His kingdom. I want to ask you a question. Where are we living in this statue? At the head or in the toes? And it continues on and it says, And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it was broken pieces, broken pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. You know, as I finished reading this my freshman year in college, sitting at my desk that Saturday morning, I went through these things and I saw there is no way that any man could have predicted this. There's no one that can tell you what's going to happen in five minutes from now, let alone for 2,500 years of history. But yet God was able to lay out the secessions of the world-ruling empires without flawless detail. And we notice as we look at Daniel chapter 7, God adds even more detail that's irrefutable that God knew what He was talking about. And as I was sitting at my desk that morning, the thought hit me. If God's real, why aren't you living like it? I remember sitting there thinking, well, what are you talking about? And it was just a strong impression. If I'm real, if my Bible is real, why don't you live like it? You see, I think if we believed the Bible more, we would really claim it as our most valuable treasure. We would spend more time in it. We would plead with the Lord that we would understand it. And I think that's why we're all here this evening. Amen? You know, God, I want to understand that your Bible's real. I want to continue to see the prophecies of Scripture that tell me the things that are coming to pass. 
You see, the things in Daniel chapter 2 exemplify to us that there is a God in heaven. This evening, I don't know about you, but I want to say, Lord, I believe that not only just as all these kingdoms came and went, I believe that there is a kingdom called the kingdom of heaven that's soon to come upon this earth. And Lord Jesus, by Your grace, I want to be ready. Is that Your desire this evening? Lord, help me to have this experience. Why don't we pray together as we close? Father, we're just so thankful that You give us the Bible. Lord, what a precious book and a wonderful privilege we have to study the words that You give us. Lord, I'm thankful for the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 that You can tell us the end from the beginning. That You can give us confidence. You can give us something in which we can anchor our faith in. Knowing that You're a God who knows the end from the beginning. And Father, I pray that we would trust You like that. That we would take You at Your Word. That we would learn the examples of Daniel and his friends and pray and trust in Your ability to deliver us. Father, please be with us as we go home into our separate places. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.